You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today I'm excited to bring you an interview with a personal mentor of mine, Professor Mark Inhet-Panus. Born in the Netherlands, Mark worked his way across Europe and America before finally settling in Australia in 2006. It's fair to say that Australia's surfing culture has since had a profound impact on Mark, and his first forays into the ocean have grown into a life-altering passion that now underpins his research as well as filling his downtime. As you'll hear, Mark has always been one to test the boundaries of academia, and he has spent much of his career working in conjunction with industry partners, including time at Shell Research and the MIT Media Lab. Mark is an associate editor for the Journal of Materials Chemistry, a conference organiser for the Materials Research Society, and a former associate dean, scientific writing consultant, and a regular science communicator. He's got some great perspectives on the academic ecosystem, how to connect with industry, and the importance of science communication, as well as maintaining a brand. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, hello, Mark. Welcome to the Eon Labs podcast. Thanks, Leo. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to dig back a bit into your early life and family history. Can you tell the audience where you grew up? I grew up in a place called Grevenbicht, which is in the south of the Netherlands. Both my parents never finished high school. Uh, My dad grew up in the Second World War. He was 10 years old when the Second World War broke out and he was uh, just 14 when his part of the Netherlands was liberated. So during that time, there was really, um, there was two times in his period of life, the area where we grew up was right on the front line. So that was a really defining moment for him. And my mom is a little bit, she was a little bit younger, but she still also had the effects of the Second World War. So after the Second World War, there was a period of enormous growth in the Netherlands. But because of the background that I came from, it really wasn't done for people of my background to finish school. They were more sent to work. It was also because my dad's dad died at a young age and my dad became a breadwinner. So when I was growing up, finishing education was drilled into us and it was pretty much the thing that my parents expected me to do. I never realized that at the time but in hindsight I realize that now that really it was driven to have opportunities that they never had. I was also very fortunate that by the time I went to university the university system in the Netherlands became free. So usually speaking, people from my background and my social standing would not have access, would not have had access to university, but that all changed. So uh, we had no fees to go to university. Um, it was free education. Also, the entry levels for most university degree courses were abolished. Not, I'm not saying that I didn't come out of school with good grades, but there was really no entry level score. It was education for all. And I was person that really benefited from that. I was going to ask you if you had any inspirational teachers and mentors from that from that time. I had a couple of really inspirational teachers because I wanted to become a historian. And my history teacher always said to me, you know, you should really keep history as a hobby because you're going to wind up as some silly academic writing papers and submitting grant proposals. So you should do something 
uh, that is more suitable. I always had an incline for engineering, so he said, you're better off studying engineering. My chemistry teacher was also a great mentor in that regard. And of course, my mum and dad were very influential in, in what I did. Can you think of any particular stories from your, your chemistry teacher or your... Well, my chemistry teacher, as soon as I got my driving license, whenever we had chemistry class, I was to get the, um, the, um, the spring rolls for all the teachers in the school. So I was given the keys to his BMW and I was sent to leave school and go and pick up their order. So I, for, I cannot really remember taking any chemistry classes for the last year that I was at high school because I was always running errands for him, which is, which is really, really funny if you think about it. So, and despite that, I still have really good grades in chemistry. So from the early parts of your career, are there any kind of failures or, or key lessons you've, you've had throughout that process that helped you grow as a, as a person, how you're approaching your life now? Well, careers are always a succession of failures until you get to something that works for you. So, uh, for example, I studied chemical engineering and then I decided, well, all this academia bullshit is really not useful. So I wanted to get company experience. So luckily, the chemical engineering degree that I did was a cooperative degree. So I did a five-year degree. So in my four, at the beginning of my fourth year, I went to Shell Research and essentially started working in their research laboratory in Amsterdam as a research scientist while on the side completing my degree. And then by chance, I was living with some Irish people who told me there was a scholarship available at Trinity College Dublin in Ireland while I also received an offer from my home university to do a PhD and decided well the world is a small place let's find out what it's like so I went over to Ireland and started to do a PhD there at the end of my PhD I sort of figured that I should find out where you can be employable as a scientist. So I wrote about 50 letters, and the, the letters ranged from applications to Formula One team. I wrote to academia, I wrote to non-governmental organizations, I wrote to banks, I got a whole bunch of interviews out of that, and it turned out that I was most employable as an academic researcher. And finally, after a year of trying and interviewing, I got a job as a lecturer in, in theoretical physics at Trinity College Dublin and then three weeks later I was headhunted by a startup company and I resigned from my first proper lecturing position. The startup organisation Mark joined in the early 2000s was the European expansion of the Media Lab, the flagship industry engagement program of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, better known as MIT. In the US, the Media Lab had grown from its first forays in applied architecture to now host projects in fields as diverse as bionics, robotics, AI, sociology, and urban design. But the thing that makes the Media Lab's success so notable is its funding model, because work there is supported not by grants, but through partnerships with businesses that give the Media Lab their patronage in exchange for the right to access and independently commercialize any intellectual property developed at the hub. The drive to expand Media Lab's brand into Europe was fueled by optimism that European companies would buy into this new model of innovation just as their American counterparts had done. Let's dive back in now and hear about Mark's time with the Media Lab Europe. 
Media Lab Europe came knocking on the door because I had a grant with one of their researchers at MIT Media Lab in Boston. And at the time, they were looking to set up a nanotechnology effort. The approach was, you could almost call it a brute force. They had a massive budget. We're talking tens and tens of millions. They hired an enormous amount of staff, including scientists like me. And then we had to set up the company from the ground up. So there was, we were given a building, limitless budget, at least from what I could see as a university lecturer. And I thought my, my involvement was I was to set up a functioning lab for them and staff it with researchers. So I went on a recruitment drive and recruited a bunch of scientists and then started also going to other companies to buy up equipment and to invite people in. So if you think of it, it's a bit of a roundabout way. It's a different way of doing it. We didn't have a product, but we were creating everything to start creating products. So it's a very different process. And at the time, there was a lot of resistance against this approach. Because that, you know, when that actually was happening, I didn't realize how it was funded. It's only later that I, I sort of realized that the funding for this was taken out of funding for research to Irish universities. And then the MIT, uh, the Media Lab Europe was then essentially functioning as a franchise. But it was a very exciting period. The idea was to bring in companies that would then get non-exclusive licenses to the IP developed by Media Lab Europe, which is the model that MIT Media Lab functions on. So companies would spend a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year to get access, non-exclusive access. To IP. So one of the things we did apart from setting up the company was also fly around Europe, fly around America and visit companies and give them presentations of the things we were going to do. I really liked it. That was a really cool period of my life to be involved in it because before if I contacted someone and said I'm a lecturer at the University of, of Dublin Trinity College, nobody really would listen to me. But suddenly, because I was associated with MIT, I got invited to sit on forums. People would listen to us. Doors would literally open. And we did have a whole bunch of products that we were developing. Unfortunately, they were never given enough time to develop. So I guess lessons in the power of branding and also the need to, to stick with science for a long term. Well, the branding is, is a really interesting aspect because Media Lab Europe had a very identifiable brand. All I had to do when I went somewhere is I am from MIT Media Lab and that was it. Everybody knew what the company was about, what it stood for, what it was going to do. So branding, and we're going back to the year 2000 now, so it's almost 20 years ago. So there wasn't a lot of social media around. So most of the media came through newspapers, TV. The other good aspect was we had Bono from U2 was one of the directors. So that opened enormous amounts of doors where even the company, we had no products, but the BBC made a documentary about us. We had this open day where we were really showing not a lot, but it attracted huge attention purely because we had the brand and we had people like Bono and the Edge there. So that, that just, you know, that in itself was, was phenomenal. So an exciting space full of intelligent researchers, seemingly with the potential to create you know, great and world-changing products. What happened? From what I have learned, a large chunk of government funding was taken and given to this company. It's almost like a VC investment. You're giving money for a certain period of time. When the money runs out, you need to be self-sustainable. 
but hiring a whole bunch of staff without actually having any money coming in is probably not the way to do it. The idea was very exciting and everybody bought into it. We all believed in it when we worked there. Do you still believe in it now? I would definitely do that again. I would do this again because it brought me into contact with a lot of people. It also taught me a couple of very important lessons that I still use to this day. So to give you an example, Media Lab Europe, the pitch that we would make to a company was five minutes. So let's say at the time Nokia was a really big company. They came in from the headquarters in Helsinki. There was a little lunch put on. And as a scientist, I was given five minutes to convince them. That was the time span that these people have. So to be able to cut through everything and just come straight to the point in five minutes is something that is, is very important. What advice would you give to a scientist who's trying to, I guess, learn those skills of, of talking succinctly? Uh, I think we all fall into the trap of digging deep into the data and the analysis. How do you sell a message in five minutes? Talk to a 12-year-old and convince them without them switching off. So you need to get your idea across without using very fancy language. And usually the advice that media people give you is, imagine you're talking to a 12-year-old. Now explain your research in half a minute on the level that a 12-year-old can, can understand. And 12-year-olds are very smart. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned the kind of the media because compared to the average researcher, you are featured quite heavily on, on radio, on television, in magazines and, and the like. And I wondered how you approach kind of connecting with those, those sources of broadcast media and getting your story featured. Um, a lot of the times... They just approach me when they see something on my social media profiles. So I do, I post across four different platforms consistently. I post across Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And there are now, in the last couple of years, I've been contacted through Twitter by a media company that said, hey, can we come and talk to you? Um, the other thing is just to unashamedly just ring them up, send them a message, send them out a press release and say, hey, I am doing this, do you want to come and have a look? And that, that sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't work. I guess that tenacity of reaching out is something that you also showed when you, you were saying you wrote 50 applications for, for jobs in that one-year period. Is, is there, a, I guess, a mindset that you take when you're putting yourself out there in those ways to get over the fear and anxiety of, of talking to people that you're not on the same level as or at least perceived not to be? I always have fear and anxiety whenever I speak to people. The best lessons I got from when I worked at Shell Research, where there was, I was working with a researcher there who was very adept at talking to the media, he always said to me, you need to know how to start and you need to know how to finish. Everything else in between doesn't matter. Just have a starting point, have an end point and have a single message and keep hammering that message until it comes across. With MIT's European experiment faltering from a lack of corporate buy-in, Mark and many of his peers were left to search for alternative employment. Over the next few years, Mark worked as a consultant and undertook a wide range of lecturing and academic roles across the UK, Ireland and America before finally settling in Australia in 2006. I asked Mark if he could compare the different academic environments he encountered through that journey. 
one of the main reasons why I wanted to leave the Netherlands is that it has a, a leader and disciples culture. So the professor of a research group is really king. And underneath that, you got a pyramid structure. And everybody that is in that research group has to pretty much do what that professor says and what direction he was taking. Whereas if you go to the system that is more popular in America and the British Isles, including Ireland, is that there is, an, and including Australia, is that you can set yourself up as a university researcher and you can run your own group and you don't really have to um, align yourself with a big professor. That obviously, non-alignment with a big professor has a huge impact on the amount of funding that you can attract. So in a, in a way, Australia and the UK and Ireland and America have some of these systems as well. But that will probably be the, the main differences between the systems. So more, more funding with alignment, but perhaps more academic freedom and, and scientific development if you go it alone. If you go it alone, you can pretty much decide what you want to do and what you want to work on, which is something that I, in my career, have always highly valued. Doing unusual things, I guess that brings us to your, your current work. Tell us a bit about your surfing research and how you got there from a researcher from the Netherlands who's probably not surfed originally. No, but I've always liked outdoor stuff. So when we moved to Australia, my wife was a surfer. She surfed in the frigid waters around Ireland. And as a birthday present, I bought her a board when we got to Australia. And since we went to the beach, and by that time we had a small child to look after, I thought, well, I might as well give this a shot. So if you fast forward 14 years now, I surf every day. I was involved with running a local board riders club, including the stint as president. And I've now turned my research into the direction of surfing materials. In particular, this comes from my drive to understand things by data. Surfing is a very subjective sport, and I really like to put numbers on it. So I quantify flex of surfboards. I quantify vibration of surfboards. I've come up with a way of fingerprinting surfboards. So I've been able to verify board technologies for surfing companies and put numbers on the technologies that they have developed. Each surfboard, the way it mechanically behaves, looks like a spectrum that you can look at and it's almost like seeing a fingerprint. And we've also looked at things that matter for surfers such as damping and flex, which is really which are really important characteristics. And of course we can put sensors on surfboards so we can also quantify if a surfboard goes faster than another surfboard or if you can do better turns or less better turns or faster come, come out of a turn faster. So, so how did surfing companies approach the, this process originally? Clearly they've been doing research and development to some degree for, for decades. Um, can you talk us through, I guess, the traditional approach in the surf industry? From what I know, the traditional approach in surfing industry is that they give it to a bunch of really good surfers who go out surfers and give them feedback about how the board feels in the ocean. And there are companies that do limited materials testing. But I also don't know exactly how much they do because nobody really has shown me yet what they do. But I do know that companies do some materials testing, but most of the testing comes down to giving it to really good surfers who can translate their feelings of how a board performs in the water to the mechanical characteristics of that board. So I know this work's put you in touch with quite a lot of industry leaders and businesses. Can you, can you tell us about how some of those businesses are approaching dealing with you as a university researcher? A lot of them are cautious in dealing with a university because universities are 
really set up to do research for academic purposes and to teach students. Interactions with companies is not really something that a university is set up properly for. So they are a bit cautious when they approach me, but then when I show them what I do and how I do things, they're very keen to engage with me. As a bit of a final wrap, I wanted to ask you what you're reading at the moment and do you have any book recommendations for the crowd? I'm not sure if this is normal, but I read several books at the same time. So I am currently reading a book for the events leading up to the start of the First World War, but more looking from the Austrian and the German perspective and the interactions that happened with the Tsarist Empire and the way they were all interconnected with each other. So that's a more of a heavy book. On a more lighter side, I read a book by Jeffrey Archer at the moment. He's one of my favorite authors because it's a book that you can just completely disappear in. And I read a lot of Peppa Pig. Peppa Pig is my three-year-old daughter's favorite book. So we read a lot of Peppa Pig at night. Awesome. Well, thanks for being part of the podcast, Mark. It was great to speak with you. You're welcome, Leo. Pleasure. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Brenny Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guest's biography, the papers we discuss, and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.